that God gives us. And the question then is, how do we steward those? If you would, please read along with me or listen to me as I read. (laughs) Starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one, one body of Christ, in Christ, and individual members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The really important news that we hear impacts us, but only really important news. Oftentimes, you and I may open the newspaper or find your news online on your cell phone, watch news on TV, and uh, hear news on the radio, and, and then immediately you're just on to the next thing. No impact. That's, that's what a lot of news does for us. In fact, we're inundated with so much information sometimes, it's just kind of like goes over our heads. But really important news makes an impact. It changes us. For example, think uh, in terms of tragic news. Think, think lately, where were you when you heard about Sandy Hook and the, the school shooting in Connecticut? You know, many of us cried or prayed for them. Uh, many parents kind of looked with, uh, you know, looked at their children as much more precious in light of that that event. Or, or think, you know, in, in the, within the past decade, think of uh, 9-11, where were you when you heard about that? Think about the way it impacted you, the way it changed you, and even as a nation, the way that it forever changed the way that we viewed national security um, and, and terrorist threats. News impacts us. Important news impacts us. Not only does tragic news impact us, but so does good news. Think about hearing of a family member uh, who's going to get married, you know, news of a wedding, or news of a new child to be born. You know, or in your job, uh, if you've heard uh, your, your boss tell you you're getting promotion, the news, that, that great news impacts you. Or let's say that there was, a, there was a medical scare and you're getting tests done at the doctor. The doctor comes back and says, your tests are clear. Think about the way that, that impacts you. That, that it changes you. It changes the way you think, the way that you feel, the way you act. The important news really changes us. And I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. You see, uh, so Paul, for the first 11 chapters, has been telling us the good news of the gospel. He's been telling us what Christ did for us. And, and he's been, for, for, for 11 chapters, it's as if he's holding that news up 
And he looks at it from a variety of angles. And he wants us to, to really study it, contemplate it. He wants us to get our minds around this good news of the gospel. He holds it up for all to see. And then, in verse 12, he changes and says, All right, now you've heard this gospel. Now it needs to impact you. This gospel needs to change you because that's what good news does. That's what really important good news does. So the question today that I want us to wrestle with is how does the gospel practically impact our lives? Because if it is important to us, it should practically impact our lives. So the question is how? How does the gospel practically impact our lives? And I think the answer according to Romans 12 verses 1 through 8 is threefold. First of all, the gospel makes us transformed. The gospel makes us transformed. Secondly, the gospel makes us team players. The gospel makes us transformed. The gospel makes us team players. And then finally, the gospel makes us talented. All right, those are the three things that from this passage we're going to look at. All right, and from that, I pray that we're all encouraged to, to search ourselves and to think, is the gospel really impacting me? Well, let's get started. First of all, The gospel makes us transformed. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." Well, the, the main focus in, in this little section, this point, for me, is going to be on the don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But before we get there, we'll look quickly at verse, verse 1. You know, Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God. And again, just like good news impacts us, what Paul here is saying is that all of his commands, he's getting really practical here in, verse tw- in, in chapter 12, getting really practical, but he's reminding us in that first verse that everything he's getting ready to say is based upon the gospel that he's already told us. Every command he's giving us is based upon the mercies of God. Remember those mercies that, Roman, that, that Paul enumerates throughout the Romans uh, book. First of all, the, the, the tragic news upon which the good news is based is this, is that we were all dead in sin. Every single one of us, dead in sin. God created us to worship him. He created us to love him. He created us to, to seek after his heart. But every single one of us here today, instead of that, we have turned inward Instead of focusing on our creator, we have turned inward to worship ourselves, to serve ourselves, to seek our own good, to follow our own heart. And that's rebellion against God. And every single one of us is in a state of rebellion when we are born. And our lives just work that out in one way or another, rebelling against God. That's the bad news. It gets even worse, though. Not only is that true of us, but the consequences of that is that God judges us. We saw that in Matthew 25 today. God does not look lightly upon our sin. Our culture says, hey, it's no big deal, right? You do, what, you do what's, what's, what's good for you, I'll do what's good for me. Live and let live. Hey, it's no problem. But that's not the way that the Bible tells us God works. Right? That's my, that might be how we want him to work, but that's not what God says about himself. God says about himself... He says, in contrast to what we believe in our culture today, I am holding you accountable 
for the way that you live your life. That's what God says to us. When you break my commandments, when you break just one of them, I'm holding you accountable for that because that's not what I created you to do. I created you to worship me, but instead you worship yourself. I'm I'm holding you accountable for that. And the result of that, that judgment, is separation from God. We were created to be with God, but sin, the result of sin, is separation from God. And currently, that, that, that on this world, that, that ultimately brings us misery as we are separated from God. But the Bible says that even one day, eternally, we will, we will face judgment because of our sin. One day, we will sin before God. We might think in our culture that's outdated thinking. It's not outdated. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says about himself. He says, one day you will stand before me and you will give account for your actions. I will hold you accountable. This is Romans chapter 1 through 3. We've all sinned. The result is death. But, but, this is the great but in Scripture. But God does not leave us. In our sin. He doesn't leave us to, to, to linger in death. He doesn't leave us to just to be miserable. He comes to us to rescue us in Christ. And that's what Christ did. Christ Himself was our rescuer. He was the one who reached down and brought us out of the pit and brought us to new life. And He did that by being born, being born of the Virgin Mary. Living a life and living a good life at that. You and I, we have sinned over and over and over again. In fact, our life is a long list of sins. But Christ, from day one until the day he died, never once sinned. Never once did he do something that God said do not do. Never once did he not do something that God said to do. He lived a perfect life. And what he does is to give us a gift. That gift is his perfection. His perfect record, he says, yeah, I want you to have that. We take that perfection from him, and from now on, God looks at us as perfect because of what Christ did. But not only does he do that, but Christ looks at us in our filth, in our sin, in our spiritual depravity. And he says, okay, that record that you've got, that looks so disgusting. I'm going to take that, and that's going to be my record now. And I'm going to die for it. And that's what he does. That's what the cross is all about. Him, Christ, dying for our record of sin. Him giving us his perfect record of righteousness. That's the mercies of God that Paul starts out with. This mercy of God, this gospel, is what every single command in Scripture is based upon. So we have to first remember that this is all on the mercies of God. Then Paul says, because of the mercies of God, I want you to be living sacrifices. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is the impact of the good news of the gospel. Now, in, in the Old Testament, in, in, the, in ancient Israel, they would offer sacrifices on the altar. They, they would kill, kill these animals, and, and they would be offered on, on, on the altar as a burnt offering to God couple things you need to see in order to understand what point Paul is making about living sacrifices. First of all, those sacrifices, uh, they were wholly devoted to the task. Here's what I mean. Uh, the, the lamb being brought to the altar, he didn't just lose an arm, right? Arm was burnt on the offering, that was it, and he just kind of went away as a three, three-legged lamb. No, he went to the altar and he was gone. He was completely offered up. He lost his life. It was comprehensive, There wasn't kind of holding back one part of the lamb. No, the whole lamb 
went on the offering. It went on the altar and, and was burned up. That's like you and I. Our, our lives are to be comprehensively devoted to God. Not just one part, not just our work, not just our family, not just our Sunday mornings, but whole life comprehensively devoted to God, like the sacrifice. Secondly, uh, it, these sacrifices, God talks a lot of times about, about pure sacrifices in, in, in the Old Testament, and it says that they, those sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. They're pleasing to the Lord. I think that's something we need to think about. Um, our good works never save us, right? That's the whole point of the gospel. We can't earn God's love. When God saves us, he brings us into the family by, by grace. And then from that point forward, we have an opportunity to, to do good works, right? Good works don't save us, but we have an opportunity because of the gospel to, to be obedient, to do good works. And those good works, that, that life of being a living sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord. It is acceptable to the Lord. The Lord delights in our obedience. We need to meditate upon that. Our works matter. The good works, which sometimes seems like drudgery, seems mundane, God delights in those. It is acceptable to God. It is pleasing to God. Now, you might say, okay, so we're supposed to be living sacrifices. What does this look like? What does that really look like? Well, you have to keep reading. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed, right, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. What does a living sacrifice mean? It means that we're no longer conformed, but we're transformed as Christians. We're going to be talking a little bit later about gifts and gifting and talents. And I've done enough woodworking to know that that is not my talent. Um, I will take a a, a 30-minute task and make it five hours um, because I'm not good. But one of the things that I learned in woodworking is that when you're, if you have a lot of pieces to cut, right, it's kind of woodworking 101, have a lot of pieces to cut, uh, you, you meticulously measure a piece, right? You, you kind of take out your, you know, your, your tape measure and you, you measure the piece, uh, you know, and, and measure twice, cut once. That's the, that's the rule. You measure very carefully, very meticulously, and you cut. Well, let's say you need, a, you need 20 pieces, that same, that same length, right? The same measurement. Well, you have some options. You could very meticulously measure each piece, kind of, you know, pull this piece aside and then measure the next one and then cut, or what you could do is use a template, right? You meticulously measure one piece. You very carefully, you, you cut it and then you double check it and make sure it's right. You got this template, right? Imagine me holding a piece of wood, right? And this is exactly what every other piece of wood needs to be measured as. It needs to be cut as. So then you use this as a pattern and you put it down and you cut the next one. Okay, you take this, you still keep your template, move that aside, put it in the next one, you cut it. If you've measured correctly, then this template, this pattern will give you accuracy across all the pieces you need to cut, okay? Well, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, this is part of, this is kind of an image to help you see what he's getting at. We need to be not conformed to the pattern of this world. We need to not use this world as a measurement for how we live our lives. Just like in woodworking, if you have the wrong pattern, you're going to be in big trouble, okay? But if you use the right pattern, you're going to be set. Well, again, we need to be careful. What, what is our pattern? What is your pattern? The problem with using the world as a pattern, the problem with conforming to this, the pattern of this world is that we don't, this isn't our home. This, this world currently under sin is not what we were meant for. We're just passing through. We're sojourners. One day, 
will be at home. But this world is not our home. And if we set our pattern based upon this world, we're going to be led astray. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. We are created to be different as Christians. Not perfect, right? But different, progressively different throughout the, throughout the rest of your life. <clears throat> if someone were to look at your life and, and see that there is sin in it, there would be no surprise because even Christians struggle with sin. Even Christians wrestle and grapple with our own failings, our own sin. But if someone were to look at your life and see you as no different from the rest of this world that does not know Christ, that is a problem. Not perfect, but different. Not perfect, but progressing in holiness. That's what God calls us to be. He calls us to be transformed. That's true of our actions, right? The things we do. That's true of our hearts, the things we love. But especially in Romans 12, Paul focuses on our minds. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that by testing, we would be able to discern the will of God. We need to have different minds, minds that are transformed, minds that are not focused on the pattern of this world, but the pattern of God as it is revealed to us in Scripture. We are to be different. I would, I would suggest that, that one of the practical applications of this passage, right, one of those good takeaways to go home and think through and wrestle through, is <clears throat> what, what, are you, what, are, what are you focused on? Where is your mind? Is your mind being increasingly transformed by the, by the reading of God's word with the help of the Spirit? Or is it completely set on worldly things? I love movies. I love TV. I love music, some of which is not Christian. I'm not, I'm not anti that, but I am pro word of God. Right? And we need to be focused more on reading the word of God so that our minds are transformed. Transformed by the renewing of our minds. Therefore, we will be able to test and discern what the will of God is. Oftentimes we, we wonder, especially with big decisions, what's God's will? What's God's will for my life? Is God's will for me to date this girl or to take this job or to go to this college or t- whatever? I think a lot of times we're asking ourselves the wrong question. We're trying to figure out what's the secret will of God when God has revealed his will to us in the Bible. The way that you test and discern the will of God is by, by feasting your mind on the Scripture. So good practical challenge to us <clears throat> Think about this. Are you, are you transformed? The good news should transform us, right? Good news impacts us. Are you being transformed in the renewing of your mind? I will challenge you to, to think about that because when you do, when you devote yourself to the reading, the reading of God's word and the renewing of your mind, it changes your perspective. It changes the way you see life. It changes your perspective. You might say, well, how does it change my perspective? Well, that leads us to point number two. The gospel not only makes us transform, but the gospel also makes us team players. For those of, for the football fans out here, professional football fans especially, <clears throat> um, you know the story of Adrian Peterson. This year, so two, last year, <clears throat> Adrian Peterson, uh, you got to understand, he's, one, he's, he's, I think most people would argue, the best running back. He's a Minnesota Vikings. The best running back that, that, that's currently out there right now, <clears throat> many people would say, of all time. Last year he got hurt. His, his knee was just destroyed. He, he, got, he had to have reconstructive surgery on his knee. Everyone was thinking, oh, this is such a tragedy. Adrian Peterson is never going to come back. He's this great talent, but it's, but it's wasted on this energy. And everyone was kind of like just bemoaning this, this tragedy. Well, he came back this year. Everyone thought, okay, he's going to lose a step. You know, he's not going to be as good as he was. He's not going to be this, this once-in-a-lifetime talent that everyone was talking about. He's just going to be a little slower. He's not going to be able to cut as well. 
he was even better than he's ever been before. And he was just blowing people away. Every game, you know, he, the commentators would just be in awe of him. Do multiple 200-yard games, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's unheard of. It's the, people, you know, <clears throat> people don't come back from surgery and, and run as well as Adrian Peterson did. But, but in his, uh, <clears throat> the final game of the regular season, um, they were playing to get in the playoffs. All right? it, was, it was undecided that this game determined whether or not the team was going to get to the playoffs or not. And, and Adrian Peterson only had you know, a little over 100 yards to run in order to, you know, if he, if he made this mark, I forget exactly what it was, in the upper hundreds, um, <clears throat> then he, he, would, he would, you know, be the most successful running back in the history of the NFL. He would have the most rushing yards of any running back that has ever played the game throughout history. And now, for those of you not sports fans, you're like, yeah, whatever. But, but for those sports fans, especially people who like the NFL, you're like, oh, man, this is awesome. He's going to be the best running back in all of history, statistically proven, right? Well, throughout the game, he has a great game. And, and you, see, you see his rushing total, right, throughout the season versus the, 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 the record. And, and it keeps creeping closer and closer and closer and closer and closer until you get to the last play of the game. Now, you have to understand the Minnesota Vikings, they, they were down in points. All they needed was a field goal to win, but with less than a minute left on the clock, they were going to lose unless they got in the field goal range, and they weren't in field goal range. So one of the last plays of the game, they give the ball to Adrian Peterson. Right? He needed like 20 yards, give or take. All right? And they give him the ball, and they hand it off to him, and, and he goes, and, and, and he runs well. He cuts, and he makes, you know, makes a miss a tackle, and, and he keeps running, and he gets him into field goal range. He gets brought down. The commentators are going crazy. He missed the, the all-time rushing total by seven yards. Seven yards, that's nothing in football. Seven yards, he missed it. All right, but he got him into field goal range. Sure enough, they kicked the field goal, and they went into the playoffs. All right. Afterwards, after the game, they, they, were, they, they were interviewing Adrian Peterson. And, and you could see his face was just ecstatic. He was just so, so, so happy. And you're thinking, yeah, okay, so he's, he's happy. Maybe, maybe he doesn't know he missed the total. Maybe he's just recognizing that you know, this shows, this proves how great he is. This proves that he, he didn't quite get that record, but he is that good, right? They start interviewing him. He's got this big old smile, which already, you know, a lot of NFL players will try to, you know, play it cool. But he's just, he's just grinning. He's cheesing. And, uh, and, and they're talking about the game. And, and, and the, uh, the commentator, the, 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 the announcer, the reporter, asks him, says, so what about those seven yards? What did you think about those seven yards? And he kind of has this quizzical look. He's like, what are, you, what's that, what are you talking about? And, and she says, the seven yards that you needed to make the record. And he just kind of laughed. He's like, <laughs> is that what it was? <laughs> he had no idea. This was going to be the record that was going to set him apart uh, from all other football players at that position throughout history. But what Rager and Peterson was so excited about was that he got them into field goal range so that they could win as a team and get into the playoffs. And I just thought, wow, that is, that is awesome, especially if you, if you see a lot of these athletes getting interviewed. There's just something different about that. You know, he was a team player, truly. He was concerned not about himself, but about the team. And what Romans 12 does, it gives us this team theology, this body theology. Verse 4 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Individually, members 
one of another. You see, when, when Christ saves us, he brings us into the family of God, and we're no longer just individuals. We're no longer alienated. In our culture, alienation is such a big problem right now. Uh, technology is supposed to bring us together, but we are more alienated now than ever. Loneliness, depression, suicide, these things that are rampant in our, in our society just prove that, prove how lonely and alienated we are. But God gives us a family. Even my analogy of being a team player doesn't really speak to the, 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 the depth and the seriousness of, of what this is. <clears throat> the, 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 the analogy is we are brought into the family of God. We are one body, Paul says. This is not voluntary. This is not, you know, hey, I don't think I want to be a hand anymore. No, we're, we're locked together. You are not on your own. You are, whatever you're struggling with right now, you're not alone. And if you are, if you feel alone, it's because you don't have an appreciation for the body of Christ that God's given you. If you feel like you're in it by yourself, that means you're not reaching out to the rest of your body the way you need to be. You need to ask for help. You need to let other parts of the body care for you. We are one body. And, and in light of that, Paul gives us this challenge to be humble. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. You see, body theology really only works when we're appropriately humble. If every one of our body parts is trying to, is trying to elevate himself, then we can't function as one whole. You know, if the hand you know, isn't content but it's trying to be a foot... It's not going to work well. If the foot's going to be try to be another foot, I mean, think about this when you dance, right? And you can't dance if you're uncoordinated like me and you're trying to dance. What do you say? I've got two left feet, right? I can't, it, I'm not working well because I've got two left feet. I'm clumsy. In the body of Christ, we need to recognize that each individual function, each individual member has a particular function. You're valuable for what you bring, not what's, what, what you wish you would bring. God created you the way that you are for a purpose. Really quickly, just some, some practical applications of this. I, I would encourage you to think, first of all, how's your body theology? How concerned are you for the needs of others in the church? That's a test question, litmus test question. How concerned are you for the needs of others in the church? How aware are you of the needs of others in the church? Are you in a position, in a group, in a life group, in a small group, in a Bible study, where you know of the needs of others in the church? If not, you probably don't have great body theology. You need to get involved so you can pay attention to the needs of the church. Also, recognize good body theology. Do you have it? Um, do you recognize how valuable the part that you have to play is? In just a second, we're going to get into the spiritual gifts and, and kind of enumerate that a little bit more. But first of all, just recognize that God's, the place that God's put you in in life is, is with a purpose. And if we're all created to worship God in everything we do, I can't worship God the same way you can. You can't worship God the same way I can. I can't worship God, for example, as a stay-at-home mom, because I'm not a stay-at-home mom, right? But if I believe that everything we do done with the, with the, with the spirit of, of worship is, is glorifying to God, this stay-at-home mom, she has a unique way of singing worship to God by the way she cares for her children, right? Same thing as a banker. Man, I cannot relate to that lifestyle. But if I believe what the, the Bible says about our work, then your work is valuable. And your work done with the, with the right attitude, done with prayerfulness, done with, with, uh, with an attempt at excellence, that is a way of worshiping God. And you, we each sing a, a, a different tune, right? But when we all sing together, it's valuable. So re- good body theology recognizes the value of what we have. Let's jump ahead to the, to the 
The spiritual gifts, right? The, first of all, the, the gospel makes us transformed. Secondly, it makes us team players. But thirdly, it makes us talented. The gospel gives us talents, gives us spiritual gifts. Christ died and rose again to give you a new life. Transformation to make you a team player, but also giving you talents. Verses 6 through 8 say this. Having gifts that differ accordingly to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who acts of mercy, does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. But, you know, we're talking about stewardship, right? And, we're, and stewardship can be related to your finances. So you've got these, these gifts, right? These financial gifts. How well are you using them? All right? Or it could, be, it could be time. We're all given a finite period of time. How well, well are you using your time to worship God? But it also applies to our talents. God has given you. There is not one untalented person in this church right now. The person next to you is talented. You are talented. You, the question is, what are you talented in, right? And that's what we're going to look at. But you are talented. We need to steward our talents in a way that worships the Lord. You know, we all can't do everything. Yeah, I think the general principle I'd like you to see is that you can't do everything, but, but everyone can't do the things that you can do, right? You can't do everything, but everyone can't do the things that you can do. You can't do everything. For example, man, I am just really bad when it comes to administrative tasks. All right, so this word leadership in here, uh, in, in other places, sort of translated administration, okay? And, and at least in that one area of leadership, man, I'm just not gifted. You ask me, you know, so I'm, I'm supposed to be, you know, one of the people who kind of oversees the youth ministry at our church, and I love that. But you ask me a detail about that, like where we're meeting tonight, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Thankfully, I have other people in our, in our youth leadership who they are talented with administration, and so they'll send out emails, they'll remind people. You know, you ask me a detailed question, I'm lost, Right? But, but teaching, man, I love to teach. So, you know, let me teach. Don't let me do details, you know? If you, if you reverse it, man, that's, that's, that's bad. So you can't do everything, but you can do something that others can't. How do you know your gifts? A couple questions. Where do you come alive? What types of activities just make you come alive? Where do you feel passionate? What do you naturally find yourself doing? What do you, na- you know, if, if you could do anything, what kinds of things would you naturally find yourself doing, especially in terms of service. If you could choose anything, where would you serve? What are you good at? I mean, think about what, what do you think you're good at? What do other people say you're good at? You may not have the answers to some of these questions, but ask someone who knows you. Ask a family member. Ask a spouse. Ask a parent. Ask whoever. Ask people. What are you experiencing? What experiences has God given you that would uniquely you know, fit in certain, in certain gifts sets? This is so important. Understanding your gifts is so important. I'm going to briefly suggest, you know, different gifts and, and how you can use them. But you've got to get this. God, you don't have ownership over these gifts. God has given you, God has given them to you. So they're not yours to use or not use. God gives them to you and he tells you what to do with them. And he says, know where you're gifted and use them. All right, different spiritual gifts. I'm going to follow uh, Vern Poitras. He's a, he's a biblical scholar and a theologian. And he says, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of gifts, right? Some of them which, which aren't even mentioned in this passage. But you can sort of, you know, if you think about the, role, the work of Christ, 
We say that Christ was a prophet and a priest and a king, right? So he had prophetic duties, he spoke. He had priestly duties, he served people, he washed feet, right? He served. But he also, uh, he also had kingly duties, he led, right? It's his kingdom, it's his church, he's the leader of it. So Poitras makes the point that just like Christ had, you know, prophetic gifts, priestly gifts, and, and kingly gifts, so do we. So he would sort of, you know, categorize these gifts according to those ways. So just for the sake of maybe helping to simplify, hopefully, I'm going to use those categories. So prophetic gifts. Let, let, me, let me first kind of say, hey, how do you know if you have these? And then how you can use them. So first, is this you? And secondly, how can you use them? All right, first of all, prophecy. Now, prophecy is a little bit controversial. I'm not going to go into it. I don't have time. But I would say this. Prophecy, the main point of prophecy is authoritative teaching and boldness. If you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, look at the prophets in the New Testament, the apostles, they all had that in common. They were bold and what they said carried authority. So I would suggest that in turn, this is a, a you know, general prophetic gift. I'm going to say prophecy, exhortation, and teaching all fall under those, the big prophetic gift umbrella. Prophecy, are you a prophet? Well, uh, are you someone who, with the word of God, and right now, this is our authoritative word. You know, in the Old Testament, when prophets were all over the place, they didn't have a canon of scripture, right? So what God did is he used men to speak the word of God. He still uses men to speak the word of God, but now he bases that upon scripture. So are you a prophet? Are you someone who speaks boldly, who just has this innate ability to speak boldly, especially when truth needs to be, be spoken? Are you someone who uses the word of God and can just see things clearly, and just speaks with boldness? Is that you? Are, are, are you, do you have a prophetic gift? Secondly, teaching. All right, teaching, you know, clarity. Clarity explaining scripture. You know, the prophet would be bold, Teacher is gonna, he's gonna be, he's gonna be clear. He's gonna take concepts that are difficult and make them come alive. Another prophetic, another big prophetic gift is that you. Another prophetic gift. So there's prophecy, there's teaching, and there's exhortation. All right, the word for exhort is to build up, to encourage, to urge, to plead. But it's in a general lifting up way. All right, do you? Would you say you have you have word gifts? You you like speaking, but instead of the boldness as what's characterized as the prophet, instead of the clarity that's characterized as the teacher, are you someone who just loves to encourage, loves to build people up, loves to support them and, and see them grow? But you have a, an encouraging bent to you. Is that you? And not only are there the prophetic gifts, but there's pre- priestly gifts, right? There's service gifts. Acts of service is one of them. Waiting tables. Right? That, that would be one of the things in the, in the Old Testament. You know, are you someone who loves to be behind the scenes? You love hearing of a practical need that needs to be done. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's not maybe it's the most glamorous need, but you love, you know that there's a need, and so you're going to jump, do whatever you can to serve. Is that you? Are you someone with the, with the service gifts? Uh, another one would be one who contributes. Right? That's another one in this list. You know, someone who gives or shares with liberality. It says here, do it with liberality, do it with generosity. Is that, are you someone who just naturally, you just come alive when you're, when you're giving. It doesn't have to be money. It could be property. It could be, you know, you're just someone who, if there's a practical need, you'd love to lend your car. <laughs> you'd love to, to open up your home. You'd love to, to give practically. Is, is that you? Acts of mercy. Are you drawn to the needs of others who are hurting? Are you, are, are you someone who just naturally has compassion when someone's hurting and you just long to go help them? Is that you? Maybe acts of mercy would be your spiritual gift. Finally, there's the kingly gifts. And in, 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 this, in this passage, that would be leadership. One who leads, lead with zeal. Are you someone who just naturally finds yourself in a crowd just leading people? You know, managing, having authority. 
Do people respond well to your direction? Do you have a proven track record in, in, in leading others? Do you find yourself leading in groups more often than not? Maybe leadership would be your spiritual gift. I do want you, each one of you, to kind of make a note. And what do you think yours is? All right, there's a long list here. Which is your spiritual gift? Maybe make a couple of notes. Maybe make a question mark and talk with some friends afterwards. But I want you to take, have this practical takeaway. What is your spiritual gift? You need to know it. That's the first thing you need to do. Because the second thing, you've got to use it. You can't use it if you don't know what it is. So figure out, pray, ask, talk. What is your spiritual gift? Know it and then use it. If prophecy is your spiritual gift, for example, uh, in the church, outside the church, you can be used. Inside the church, you know, in situations that are difficult, people don't want to, to, to see, people don't want to speak the truth because they are, they are afraid. Your role is to speak. You need to, you need to learn how to do that without being overly offensive, right? It's the word of God that's offensive, not you, hopefully. So you need to, you need to learn how to do that, but you need to speak boldly within the church. Find teaching opportunities where you can speak boldly. If you know someone's struggling with something, speak boldly into their lives if you have the prophetic gift. Outside, speak the gospel boldly. Many of us struggle with boldness, right? Recognize, if you're, if you're, a, if you're someone with a prophetic gift, you don't get that. <laughs> you don't get that a lot of us struggle with boldness, right? Like me, right? You're just like, yeah, everyone's bold. No, they're not. So you be someone who's, who boldly speaks the gospel. We all need to do that, but you're uniquely gifted to do that boldly. So do it. Teaching, is that yours? Well, in the church, then you need to be teaching DNL if that's your gift. You need to be leading a life group or leading a men's Bible study. Find some avenue to teach, to speak the word of God, to make it come alive. Because a lot of people, if you're a teacher, you don't get this. But a lot of people open the Bible and they're kind of like, what? I, I don't understand. You're someone who's gifted to help it make sense to them. Outside the church, use teaching as a bridge for evangelism. You know, people long for information. They long to, if you're someone, you don't have to just teach the Bible. You can teach other things and let that be a bridge for the gospel to come forward in relational evangelism. If teaching is your gift, use it. Exhortation. Is exhortation your gift? If so, then you need to be mentoring people. You need to find a mentoring relationship. Even if it's not readily available to you, you need to seek it until you find it. You need to be in a small group where you can encourage people. If you are someone who, who has the gift of exhortation, you are uniquely gifted to promote growth in people's lives, and you've got to find those opportunities. Is your gift exhortation? Outside, look for, look for counseling opportunities, counseling with a small C. Look for counseling opportunities where you have someone who is hurting, struggling, and hey, you're a good encourager, right? You're good at lifting people up, so go do that for someone who's not a Christian, and then bring the gospel in there. If you are an encourager, an exhorter, encourage, exhort. Priestly gifts, service. Look, there are so many ways that you can serve with practical gifts in this church. We are a church in the box. Every morning we have, you know, uh, 20 people who are, you know, in one way, shape, or form setting up. If you have a gift of service, come be a part of the setup team. There are so many ways that you can serve behind the scenes. Just ask Sandy Lawson. <laughs> she will give you numerous ways that behind the scenes you can serve. Talk to the leadership. Talk to your elders. Say, hey, you know what? I think I'm gifted with service. Do you think there might be a way for me to use my gift? The answer is yes. If your gift is service, then serve. Contribution. If this is who you are, then give. <laughs> give, tithe. We're all commanded to tithe, 10%. That's not just for people who are gifted with generosity. We're all commanded to tithe. 
10% of our income. All right? But some of us just really come alive. Some of us are like, okay, I know I'm being faithful to Scripture. I know that this is all God's, so I'm going to do it. But some of us do it with a passion. If that's you, then do, then give. And, and just keep giving and give and give and, and find ways to promote giving with other people. We all struggle to give. You know, money is, a, is an idol in our society. So if generosity is your gift, if giving is, is, is your spiritual gift, then find ways to promote giving within this church. Find ways to encourage other people to give beyond what they currently are. Outside the church, give to the poor. Give to your neighbors. You know, the people who, who, who are in need, give and let that be a witness. Let that, that, let that come alongside the words that you speak to promote the gospel. Finally, kingly gifts, right? Leadership. You know, if, if, if you are gifted in terms of leadership, in terms of administration, there are, again, just like acts of service, there are multiple ways that you can serve. Perhaps, all right, uh, perhaps if, you're, if you are um, someone who, who feels called to be an elder, all right, then that's something that you should seek. Talk to current elders, talk to current deacons. Figure out if that is your gift. We have numerous ministries, right? I just shared with the youth. I need people who are gifted in leadership with me because I'm not gifted in administration at all, all right? <clears throat> I'm going to flounder. I'm going to fall on my face if I don't have people supporting me in that, all right? Every ministry in our church is like that. We are looking for people to lead. We, are, we want the gospel to go forward. We want to strengthen our body, but we need people who are gifted in leadership. Is this you? Search for it. Remember, you aren't gifted to do everything, but you're gifted in ways that other people aren't. So find a way to use your spiritual gift. Remember, this all comes back to the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news of salvation for sinners. God has given us a new life. This is wonderful news. But if it's wonderfully important news, then it should impact us. It should change us. It should transform us. It should make us a team player with a mind of the body of Christ, but it also should, should make us, we are talented if you're a Christian, but, how, but are you using those talents? That's the question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the reminder that the gospel is so powerful. Not only does it bring us a new life, but that new life is characterized by, by ongoing transformation, by, by, by having a, a team that we work with, the body of Christ. And it's characterized by, by spiritual gifts that you give to us. Father, I pray that you would show us how we can better use the spiritual gifts that you've given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand, we now have the opportunity to